Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you, God, that it is um, excellent in all that it says to us, that uh, even in the parts that are hard and and take some extra time for navigation, um, that it's divine and it's perfect, and um, Lord, we're so privileged to have it. We pray, Lord, that you would humble our hearts this morning before the book of Deuteronomy, and that we would understand your truth as being projected upon a society of people. Um and the value that you take in your creation and why that's so important. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we are in the midst of a section that is dealing with how to respect others in particular. And what's odd about this section is you can trace from the giving of the law in Deuteronomy 5 all the way to the end of 26. Uh, is what it seems to be, uh, or actually the giving of 26 would, would probably be included. So from, from 5 to 25, right in there, you can find that they give the law, they reiterate the Ten Commandments, of which we covered at that time, and then they go through and they give you some expansion upon each one. So they'll give you, you shall not steal, but then they're going to take 25 verses or a chapter and a half or something like that to unfold for you. Uh, what the idea of stealing is all-encompassing of, and it's not just the fact that you took somebody else's pen when they were away or something like that. It's actually got much more weight to it. And so right now we're talking about the respect um, for one another. We dealt with the ideas of if a man is married and he dies and they've had no children, uh, that the brother of the man is to marry the wife and to procreate and to uh, continue the lineage. And we understand that to be the Leverite law. Uh, we also uh, realized that women had incredible rights at this time to be able to publicly disgrace a man who would not follow through with this um, cultural understanding. Again, it wasn't mandated, but there were consequences for not choosing to go in this direction. And, uh, you know, uh, verse 10 of chapter 25, sorry, Deuteronomy 25, verse 10. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Now, I guess in Jewish culture, the only way you could have got worse is if you talked about their mother. Uh, But this is, we may not be able to fully understand this, but if we think about the concept and why this is what it is, it's the idea of one who is known for neglecting a very important responsibility and is probably rendered untrustworthy. Uh, That's a reputation that is tarnished in a way that that is really difficult to get back. So. It would be shamed. Yes, absolutely. Something that's very uncommon in our culture. Mm -hmm. And what it does is it keeps her from being shamed because of her situation. Uh, If you'll remember, the idea of having kids was considered a glory amongst women. And the idea of Elizabeth and her struggles to have children for so long. And then finally, she's able to have John the Baptist. And if you remember, one of the things that she said was, uh, my, my reproach has been removed by the Lord, those types of things. So uh, at this time, it, it would have been a situation that would have created a very um, odd cultural community um, backbiting, if we want to say it that way. This public disgrace act was a way to eliminate that. And uh, I don't know if it was, girl, you should have seen what she said to him. You know, I don't know if it was one of those things, but it sounds pretty serious, so... So now in verse 11, we enter into some fun territory. If two men, a man and his countrymen, so a fellow Jew, are struggling together, they're in a fight, and they've actually broken down into um, uh, putting up their dukes and, and, and duking it out. 
And the wife of one comes near to deliver her husband from the hand of the one who is striking him. So notice that she's a fighter. There wasn't anything wrong with women being fighters and helping out their husbands at that time. That's great. It's very barbaric and, and kind of a uh, kind of intriguing. My wife is a fighter. Man, she she's like real kind. You make her mad. I love it. She just goes off. It's great. Uh, I don't like seeing it too often, but when I do, it's hot. So um, so notice one striking him, and he put and puts out her hand. And seizes his genitals. Good googly moogly. Mine says, and taketh him by the secrets. Taketh him. <laughs> and taketh him by the secrets. I like it. Wow. Now, this woman must not care. She fights, and she's going to win. Okay. One guy wrote a journal article, a theological journal article on this situation. And the title of it is, The Immodest Lady Wrestler. <laughs> and I love it. It's, it's great. We read stuff like this and we kind of blush and oh, I wish we'd move on and that kind of thing. She's fighting for a man and this is the way she's going to get the upper hand. So notice it says, Then you shall cut off her hand. You shall not show pity. Now you say, wait a second, she just saved her husband's life possibly. He could have been killed in this situation. You may fight, but that's not the way you fight. And why is that? Well, you're emasculating both sides, yes. Reproduction had been stopped in this situation. And God puts a high value on what it is to be able to procreate and have kids, that type of thing, having a lineage that moves forward. And this is the reason why you found situations where this might not be your child, but this serves as your child. I mean, think about what Jacob did with Joseph. Who replaced Joseph in the line of Israel? Manasseh and who? Because the Levites were set aside for priestly service. Ephraim. Joseph's kids. And Jacob tells him, they're no longer your children. I'm adopting them. They're now my children. And since the Levites are going to be called to be priests unto God, God knew that from, from the beginning of that. And because you are technically going to be absorbed into the lineage of your son, we're now going to have Ephraim and Manasseh serve as two tribes in this 12 tribe situation. So there's still 12 tribes. And now we even have the designation. We look at our map here. <laughs> make sure Mark's head. Hey, he was using it on me in the kitchen earlier. So. But think about this. Manasseh. How come it doesn't say Joseph? The land of Manasseh. No, that's not how it is. And so it, the idea of this adoption situation, and it paints the idea of adoption as being Ephraim, full rights. They have full rights as any other practically born tribe of Israel would have been with Reuben or Judah or Gad. Didn't matter. They were fully adopted into and brought into the situation in order to procreate it forward, to, to fill in this lineage in this line. So you grab somebody by the genitals and you've stopped that. Another problem that you had is, remember this, every family was a business. It wasn't just a structure. It wasn't just, we're coming and going so much between, you know, tennis practice and volleyball and school and work and this kind of stuff that we're kind of seeing each other as we pass by. And that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. They spent all of their time together. And when you were old enough to learn some of this responsibility, you were trained in the family business, and this is what you did in order to keep the family going. There wasn't independent businesses going on. Uh, as we would think outside of the family, it was all in-house. And so now 
You've corrupted the family business. You've cost this person a livelihood that they may have had by having more offspring moving forward. So there's a lot of repercussions that come with this, and God takes it very seriously. Uh, Something to remember, there are three institutions that are divinely given by God, and these were all put into place before sin ever came into the picture. Labor, work. Work is a God-given, noble thing before sin. The idea of the family, the fact that there is to be an expansion of the human race that goes on, and that was commanded before, and the idea of sexual relationship between a man and a woman, completely uncorrupted by sin, it was mandated by God before all that happened. You get to the end of Genesis 2, you have all three of those given by God. This is how life is supposed to be lived in a perfect environment. So this is infringing upon the the glimpses into the divine institution of God pre-fall. Now you've got to deal with it pretty severely. She loses her hand. Verse 13, you shall not have in your bag <laughs> differing weights. But, and this is hard for us because we don't run around carrying weights, okay? But look what it says, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. You shall have a full and just weight. Why is that? Well, if you were traveling, let's, let's say that we didn't deal with money. And we're going to the swap shop. We're going to the flea market. We're going to the antique shop, whatever it is. I love places like that. Beaver Dam has some incredible antique shops around there. I could just walk in them forever because there's tons of stuff in there that you see. And I'm not necessarily looking to buy anything, but good grief, there's tons of amounts of history. But let's say instead of using your debit card or your credit card or cash or whatever like that, you're actually going to go out and you're going to barter this. And so in order for you to be buying or in order for you to be selling, you've got to have weights available in order to talk about what is a fair and reasonable amount for this bartering to go on. Well, a lot of people, whenever they were in a buying situation, would take a large weight with them. Why would they do that? Because they get more in what they're buying. And then when they're selling something, they would take a small weight and they put a small weight out there because it wouldn't cost them as much to get rid of product that actually come out ahead. And what you find is... This is evil, 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 evil. This is one of the most odd things that God is so upset about, but he takes these things seriously. In our business dealings with one another, what is a fair price? Anybody ever seen American Pickers? Mm -hmm. That show? Are they still doing that? I don't know. I haven't had cable in years. Okay. I'm not going to see his reruns. Okay. (laughs) Well, anyway, they're guys that are located over in Iowa, okay? And, and something very interesting happened. The guy who owns the business, Antique Archaeology, he got together all this money, was able to sell the idea, got it funded, and they're starting to film the show. And on the first show, they would go to people's houses, they're picking through all of their stuff, and they said, well, I'm going to give you this money. on." And then afterwards, they would talk about to the camera about what a great deal, or he didn't really know what he had here, so we were able to get this much cheaper than what we were. And they found out that their beginning uh, panel of viewers were very turned off by that because they saw it as those guys cheating people out of their money because they didn't know what they had. And all of a sudden this this hill's going this this show's going to go downhill quick. So they got to make a decision. Do we continue on this as businessmen and look how we're going to come out on top and we're shrewd and we're kind of ruthless and we're kind of exposing these people for not really knowing what they have and their ignorance in the situation? What they did is they made a smart decision. They rescinded all of their wheeling and dealing business ways, and they actually started to educate people on the items that they had and started to show what a fair price would be for them to turn around and to resale it and start talking about their markups. And their show went through the roof after that moment. They ended up having a huge viewership that took place. Well, it's the same principle that comes out of this. 
The idea of having false weight so that you can get ahead, so that you can cheat somebody else out of it. God sees the heart. God sees the motive in that. And you're not to act in that way. Verse 15, you shall have a full and just weight. You shall have a full and just measure that your days, now watch this, that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your Elohim gives you. In other words, if you have honest business dealings as a Jew, you will be able to remain in the promised land. But if you're going to swindle people and mess them over, he will throw you out of the land. Isn't that interesting? The consequence. It's, it's your choice. And you get to choose what the consequence is. I thought this was interesting. I wrote this down. Uh, coveting may be unavoidable, but its likelihood of finding expression in theft or other outward manifestation is lessened if the means of such expression is itself minimized. Now, this was by a guy, Eugene Merrill. He's wrote an excellent Excellent commentary on Deuteronomy. And here's what he's getting at. Instead of opting or whether or not you take the large or the small weight, take the right weight and move forward like that. Make the right decision up front and all other temptations that would spring out of that about which one to use and having that choice available, it's not even available for you. You've already cut it off before it had a chance to express itself. So avoid the sin and instead choose right from the get-go when you find that those opportunities are not available for you to even be tempted by them. Smart advice. Verse 16, for everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly, and that's the point, is an abomination to Yahweh your Elohim, is horrible, is detestable to Yahweh your Elohim. God takes justice seriously, and here's the reason why. It is all originated in him. He is the mark of justice. He declares what's right and wrong. How do we know that killing people is wrong? how do we know that God said so in fact whenever the, the situation with Cain and Abel happened what does he say to Cain what have you done notice that God didn't say that's cool that's great that's what should have happened you know what he shouldn't have been such a goody goody you should have took him out a little bit earlier no the fact that he has to remove himself to a field shows that his conscience was telling him that it was wrong because he had to get away from Adam and Eve in order to commit this sin. Everybody see? It's just the darkness. It's the darkness he chooses to hide himself in. Anybody who acts unjustly is an abomination to the Lord. Now here's another interesting thing that this brings up. Self-governance. God has given every one of us a conscience. Tells you what's right. Tells you what's wrong. Our greatest problem that we have in our day and age is we allow for our feelings to overcome our conscience. Our conscience will never tell us something that is apart from God's expectations of us. Never. Not one time. Let me let me give you this real quick because sometimes this becomes debatable with people. They don't think much of it. Put your finger here and turn to Romans 2 real quick. Sometimes people don't think much of the fact that God has given us a testimony of himself and the fact that he's created every person with a conscience. Romans chapter 2. Look at verse 14. And he's talking about the difference between Jews and Gentiles. And it's not even the fact that they're saved or unsaved. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the way that people live life as people. Okay? Watch this. Verse 14. For when Gentiles, another good way to understand that is pagans. For when pagans 
who do not have the law, and the Jews were privileged because they had the law, so they knew what God was expecting of them. The very thing that we're reading right now, the Jews had. Notice this. When pagans who do not have the law do instinctively, does everybody see that? Instinctively. The things of the law, these not having the law, are a law to themselves. Real quick, the Greek word here for instinctively is understood, the definition, the nature of something as a result, or sorry, forgive me, the nature of something of natural development or condition, the regular established order of a thing. In other words, you just know that it's right, and you just know that it's wrong, and it's not up for date for, for debate, and you actually have to violate your conscience in order to continue on in the way that your desires or your flesh or your emotions are pushing you to do so. No, no, no. When pagans who don't have God's law, God's righteous expectation of fellowship with them, and they're just doing it, even though they've never been told that, all of a sudden they become a standard unto themselves. Why? Because their conscience is telling them, red flag here, green flag there. Look at verse 15. And that they show the work of the law is written on their what? Notice that. God has taken the time to write his law on your heart. And look at the next part. Their conscience bearing witness. What is it to bear witness on the witness stand? Do you realize that the judgment seat of Christ, one of the things it's going to take the witness stand, either in favor or against us, is going to be our conscience. And our, our conscience isn't going to be like... I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. The conscience is going to bear perfectly with the truth. And it's there to it's there to testify publicly. It's one of the witnesses, either for or against us. And that's what it tells us. Their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing, ooh, that's bad, or else defending them, and that's good. Everybody see that? Your conscience is going to be a witness either for you, to defend you. No, what they did here was perfectly right was perfectly what God expected. And, this, and I'm the witness to there because the conscience was there letting them know. Or, yep, they did this, it was wrong, and I warned them and they didn't listen. The law is written on our hearts. Our conscience is telling us. Very interesting passage there about how that's going to happen. So even people who don't have God's law still have this ingrained understanding of right and wrong. It's the conscience. And the conscience is perfectly in line with what God says. So back to 25. Anyone who acts unjustly is an abomination to the Lord your God. Verse 17. Now we come out of that section. Um, and we're, we're hitting something very interesting. Because he's going to give us an example. Remember that Amalek. Sorry, remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out from Egypt. Now if you want a reference for this, this is Numbers 13. Okay. It says here, how he met you along the way and attacked among you all the stragglers at your rear when you were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. He wouldn't give you provisions, and in fact, the people that he picked off were the elderly that he, that he took out as far as Israel was concerned. Now, remember, we talk about this red line here on this map, and we talk about them coming up through here, uh, and the Amalekites, um, gosh, where were they? Well, I thought I had them on here, but I don't. Maybe I was looking at a different map. Uh, but anyway, the Malachite, the Amalekites uh, were in this area here, and they treated Israel uh, terribly when they were coming up that far uh, east side there. Uh, let me see here. And they did not fear God, verse 19. 
that example of how he didn't care for them and he acted unjustly. Therefore, it shall come about when Yahweh your Elohim has given you rest from all your surrounding enemies in the land which Yahweh your Elohim gives you as an inheritance to possess. You shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You must not forget. Now, this is a very weird way to end this chapter. It's a very weird section of scripture. And because what he's saying is, hey, remember when that guy messed over the first generation when they were trying to come through? Guess what? Eventually you're going to wipe out his entire line. Now, does anybody know where this attempt to wipe out his line was taken? Do we know much about our Old Testament and where this would have went down? Okay, let's deal with an incredibly hard portion of scripture then. Uh, go to 1 Samuel 15. Put a, put a paper here, 1 Samuel 15. Look at verse 1. Then Samuel said to Saul, now remember, Saul's the first human king of Israel, Okay. Samuel said to Saul, Yahweh sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now, and here's the command. And, and we don't like it, but this is what it is. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy. Anybody know what that Hebrew word is right there? Harum, Harum which is what we saw at the beginning of, of Deuteronomy about the idea of wiping out every living thing that is there. Utter destruction upon everything that it is. He says, and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. There's the command. Now Saul goes out to fulfill this. He actually puts together a pretty good army of people. They go out and then it gets reasoned with him. It's like, well, you know what? But their stuff is so nice. And if we hold on to their king, we can actually kind of publicly disgrace him and, and kind of make fun of him. And, and, and that would be a better way to handle it. Right, right, right. And it's reasoning beyond and apart from the clear command of God. And so this was a failure. Now, if you go over to, um, let's see here. And I just want you to know this for, your, for the sake of, of Old Testament history. You go over to 2 Samuel 8, the very next book. Saul is gone. David is on the throne. And if you start in verse 11, look what it says. King David also dedicated these to Yahweh with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations which he had subdued, from Aram and Moab and the sons of Ammon and the Philistines and, everybody see it? Amalek. David was faithful to the Lord and went and utterly destroyed Haram, the Amalekites. So, remember why this is important. You may say, why are, we, why are we looking at this as so depressing and sad that these people were wiped out? Here's the reason why. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. I will bless them who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. Our treatment of the people of Israel dictates a lot in how God allows for us to be treated. 
And, and if you want to get into it, that's a political view that we need to be very, very concerned about is how our nation is going to move forward in relationship with Israel. Not that we're saying, you know what, Israel, you've done something really bad and you've sinned and we're still all for it because we need to be on your side. Not at all. God doesn't excuse sin, neither should we. But the idea is, is supporting them and recognizing God has chosen them for a reason and God's future fulfillment of all prophecy is through them. And they are going to come out on top regardless. How we treat them determines how God treats us. Some people think that the that America is not going to make it directly in relation to that promise that's made in Genesis 12, 3. And, and I don't know that they'd be wrong because America doesn't have any mention whatsoever in, in Scripture for, for the future. So, or at all, for that matter. So anyway, happiness again, right? Turn back to Deuteronomy 26. <laughs> any questions before we venture into 26? Okay. 26. Then it shall be when you enter the land. Now notice it's given you a time and it's given you a location. When you come into the land. Now what is that visually speaking? Well, if you remember, Moses is talking to him right here. Okay? So them coming into the land is the crossing of the Jordan and they're breaching into this situation. Now if you remember from the beginning of Deuteronomy, when they came up through here, they were to spare Moab. They were to spare... Um, Where's the other one? Not that. Uh, anyway, Moab, I can't remember what it is. They were spared Moab. They were spared this area right here. Ammon's the first one that they have a lot of conflict with. And they end up taking over Bashan. And they end up taking this entire expanse all the way up to beyond this map. They were now over all of this. 160 cities from this point forward. Uh, this point north of which they had already overtaken. Plus what they would already conquered down here from Sihon. So they took Sihon stuff, they took Augabation stuff, all of this, and they're sitting here getting prepped as a second generation so that they will actually march in and handle the situation faithfully. So now God is giving them instructions for how they are to handle entrance into the land. And I can give you the references for it. We don't have to look at this uh, too much, but I can give you references for it for what they look at so verse one then it shall be when you enter the land and you'll enter right there which yahweh your elohim gives you as an inheritance and you possess it and live in it that you will take some of the first of all the produce of the ground which you bring in from your land that the that the lord your god gives you and you shall put it in a basket and go to the place where yahweh your elohim chooses to establish his name place it's the same idea of the sacred space that we saw before, the theology of sacred spaces. So notice, Yahweh is going to give the growth, and this is what's called the offering of first fruits. if you want to write that in your Bible. This is the offering of first fruits. So you plant something, and the first parts that crop up there, you pull that aside, and you bring it as an offering to God. Why do you bring an offering of first fruits to God? There's two reasons. Do we know? Um... Under and expressing you know, your faith that God's going to provide more after. Okay, so one of it is I'm bringing you this first part of it because I'm expressing faith. I'm anticipating the fact that you will be faithful and you will give an abundance more. In fact, it's, it's where we get the idea, and this is not a church age idea. Uh, it's an Old Testament law dispensation idea of tithing. We're going to bring a tenth of our crops in and we're going to offer it. And of course, who ate the crops? the Levites and gave them a means of, of filling their bellies and that's okay there's nothing wrong with that God totally permitted it uh, but but in doing that I, I'm, I'm honoring you with this God uh, 
anticipating you're going to get much more in order to feed everybody. And you had to. You had to be a God-reliant economy then, especially every third year. You're not going over your grapes two and three times. Instead, you're just letting everybody else take of them after you've gone through them once because you're providing for other people. It's a God-reliant economy. It's why it would never work here. What was the other reason? Do we know? It's not just saying, God, I anticipate you're going to give more. You've told me so in your word, and I believe it. Well, doesn't he require the first of everything anyway? Firstborn son, firstborn cattle. He does, but why? It's an offering of what? Do we know? Thanks. It's a thanks offering. It's saying, thank you, God. Thank you for supplying this at all. And and that's the interesting thing we have to remember about offerings. Old Testament offerings, New Testament offerings as believer priests, all of them are meant to humble the heart. If we keep in mind our responsibilities as believer priests, it was all meant to humble the heart. You have to sit there and bring a lamb that you had to pick from your own group and you have to watch a priest sacrifice it and kill it in front of you. You got a lot of explaining to do during story time before bed for your three-year-old that night. You see what I'm saying? There's a lot there that really brings the heart low and really makes you think about what you're doing in life and whether you're living for the right things, whether you're doing the right things. It's a wake-up call. So first fruits was a way to keep that in the right place. And notice you'll bring it to the place, the sacred space that he sets aside, verse 3. You shall go to the priest who was in the office at that time and say to him, and notice these are all formal acknowledgments and declarations of Yahweh's place in their lives. So you don't just go to the priest and you bring these things. You actually have a script. There's something you're supposed to bring up there as an Israelite. I declare this day to Yahweh my Elohim that I have entered the land which Yahweh swore to our fathers to give us. So there he is pulling off of Genesis 12. Verse 4, Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of Yahweh your Elohim. And you shall answer and say, so in other words, he accepts the offering, he brings it there. You shall answer and say before Yahweh your Elohim, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, but there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation. Now, the great, mighty, and populous nation, you find that that's the reason why they're putting slavery anyway. In Exodus chapter 1, verses 7 and 12, and the more that they got beaten, the more kids they had. Now, I don't understand that, but that's obviously the grace of God bringing about this statement that he's trying to make with them up front. Some people have got messed up over, my father was a wandering Aramean. Uh, One thing to remember is that Jacob's mother was an Aramean. If you remember, uh, Abraham sent a servant off in order to go get her for Isaac. Uh, And so that's where she came from. And this is what made Jacob's lineage from that part of the Aramean uh, race. Of course, being a full-blood Jew, absolutely, but having that lineage from there. So so that's messed some people up. But it's the idea of recognizing where you came from in your history. Reflecting upon your history and what God has done in history really helps you. In the Bible I had before this one, I had one of those little bitty pads that was about this big, and I'd put in that sticky tape stuff that you do posters on all over the back of it, and I stuck it in the front of my Bible. And and I just put on there great things that God has done. And I would list things that I found in Scripture, and I would list things that had happened in my life, especially prayers that had been answered and all those things. And I would date it so I would remember God had been faithful here, he'd been faithful here, he'd been faithful here. And regardless of what it was, I either I'd asked of him to supply something, or he had stated something in his word and later to bring it back. It was just a constant testimony of the faithfulness of God. Why? Because if I start to get so caught up in the moment, I will lose sight of what really matters in these situations and the fact that I need to be asking God to be heavily involved in what I'm doing. That, that, is, that is my human mistake that I will make. So 
I saw that as a means of trying to uh, counteract that. I have not put one in this Bible. Uh, and it makes your Bible weird and bulky. But that's okay. Uh, it's, it's good to have. Verse 6. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. Verse 7. Then we cried to Yahweh, the Elohim of our fathers. And Yahweh heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terror and with signs and wonders. And he brought us to this place and has given us this land. A land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 10. Now watch this. Now behold, I have brought the first of the produce of the ground which you, O Yahweh, have given me. And you shall set it down before Yahweh your Elohim and worship before Yahweh your Elohim. And you and the Levite and the alien who is among you shall rejoice in all the good which Yahweh your Elohim has given you and your household. Now something real quick about that. Notice again, all of this is a huge declaration that is publicly spoken in the presence of a priest with this offering of the first fruits about acknowledging where they've been, the promise of God, how it's come to be fulfilled, and this was a thankfulness offering that was given in order to tell God, you've been faithful in your promises. Thank you for giving me this as an inheritance. Uh, notice that worship comes out of this at the end of verse 10. In verse 11, this is interesting. And you and the Levite. Now, why is this important about the Levite? The Levites have no inheritance. The Lord is their inheritance. But as far as physical land, and that being what was promised on the table with the Israelites, you will have this land. This land is yours. It belongs to you. They don't have that. So notice, they are going to be considered equals in this idea. And also, notice what it says next. And the alien, the foreigner, sorry, the stranger. Does it say the stranger? No, I'm sorry. I was looking at one. This repeats a lot. The alien, the foreigner, the one who's among you that came from the pagans, but is a respecter and a worshiper of Yahweh God. Well, guess what? They're brought in on equal footing as this as well. Now, that's that would be really weird considering what a called out people they were. But essentially what that was, was a pagan who had rejected their religious structure and their little G God and is seeing that Yahweh God of the Hebrews is actually the one true God and has separated themselves from the false gods in order to come to worship the new God or the real God, forgive me. So notice, is given to your household and everybody see that shall rejoice in all the good. This is a basic thing that a lot of Christianity is missing. God is good. What God does is good. God always does good. His desire is not to heap bad on us whatsoever. His working is always good. And I think that the, you may say, well, duh, I understand that. I think if we could just grasp that one little point about things, I think it would really revolutionize the way that we interact in life. God's good. Well, this is a really terrible situation, but one thing I know, God is good. In fact, we used to do God is good all the time. All the time? You see what I'm saying? We still need that. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. It's the exact same thing it's, it's promoting here. Some people have gotten into this whole idea, well, God is actually evil. You know, he's permitting evil. He's causing evil. He's not. Uh, what time do we have? 15 seconds. Okay. Uh, we can't go anymore. Uh, we're going to get in after this about the third year offering, the third year tithe, and how the harvest is used for the disadvantage so that they are not uh, extinguished, uh, so that they don't fall on hardships and die. Um so anyway, we're, we're, we're going to deal with um, we're going to deal with what true biblical social justice looks like, not what people are promoting today as social justice. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your mercy.
and showing us wonderful things about your word, uh, whether it be from the lady who's not fighting fair and how that kind of conflicts with our minds and seems kind of odd and, and to us. Uh, the fact that we need to deal justly with one another, uh, the fact of honoring you uh, when the, the children of Israel were led into this new land, uh, that they said thank you and that they, they did this in faith, knowing that you would provide uh, the rest of their needs and sustain them. Uh, Father, make us a God-reliant people at all times. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Thank you, everybody.